0: We're glad you can join us, and we hope God uses the following sermon to reveal more of his glory to you. Well, good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. My name is Vince. I am one of the elders here at the Town Church. I'm the pastor of preaching and vision, and it's good to be with you. Josh already said this um, earlier that uh, we miss you, but I'll say it again. We, We really do miss being with you on Sunday mornings together like this. So hopefully this is beneficial to you. Here's where we are. We are into week 15 this morning in a series of walking through the gospel account of John. So if you go ahead and grab a Bible and make your way to the gospel uh, according to John, we're going to be in chapter 7 this morning um, all the way through verse 24. So we'll hit 1 through 24 this morning. If you're unfamiliar with the, where the book of John is, that's fine. We'll, we'll help you out. John is in the New Testament, which is in the back half of your Bible. Um, and, and John is the fourth of four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John. So go ahead and make your way to the book of John, and once you've found John 7, I'd like to read through the entire passage this morning that we're looking at. Typically what we do as we gather together here is that we stand together as we read the Word of God to show honor um, to the Word of God and, and to the God who gave us His Word. And so if you're able, even this morning in your living rooms, I'm going to ask you to, to stand as we read from God's Words. starting in verse 1 of chapter 7 we will read here's what it says after this jesus went about in galilee he would not go about in judea because the jews were seeking to kill him now the jews feast of booths was at hand so his brothers said to him leave here and go to judea that your disciples also may see the works you're doing For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed in him. Jesus said to them, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it, that its works are evil." You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. After saying this, he remained in Galilee. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he's a good man. Others said, no, He's leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. The Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? So Jesus answered them, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. Jesus answered them, I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge With right judgment. This is God's Word. You have a seat back on your couch or wherever you're sitting. We have called this series over the last weeks um, in the book of John, Believe. And really, that's the, the call of John. Right that is the reason why John has written that we would believe that 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 the reader would believe. John tells us why he wrote near the end of his book and we've gone through these verses multiple times but he says in, in chapter 20 now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ the Son of God and that by believing you may have life in his name that that the reader you and me that we together would believe but believe what that that Jesus is the Christ that he's the Messiah that he's the sent one and, and in believing the reader you and I would have life in his name and Jesus and John ties all that to what what does he tie all that to? He ties all that to the fact that, that Jesus did many signs, that he showed himself to be the Christ, that he showed himself to be the, the Son of God, that, that he proves his power and authority by what he has done so that we would believe and not just believe that he can do some pretty neat things. That's not why he came, but to believe that he is the Christ, that he's the Messiah, that he's the sent one and that, the, that he's the, the Son of God, that, that he is God and john also pretty quickly then shows the conflict that that just like there is belief there's also unbelief that that some will believe and some will not believe and i think it's what's interesting to me is that we're outside of the context uh, and and outside of the time that John was writing. So we're not walking with Jesus through Galilee. We're not experiencing Jesus in space and time, seeing Him um, turn jars of water into wine. We're, We're not there seeing Him heal a lame man. We're not there seeing Him multiply a few fish and some bread into food for thousands and thousands of people. We're not there seeing All of these things, seeing Jesus walk across the top of water, we're not there, but we're reading about it, and John uses for us, for our benefit, he uses belief and unbelief, the belief and the unbelief of those who were there, so that we would believe. Does that make sense? That was fascinating for me to think about, that John uses these things, belief and unbelief, to show us or to help us. Believe, and this is the this is brilliant because it invites us into the experience. John doesn't say that he's written all of this so that we would believe, and then just give us examples of those who believed. He he says he's written all of the, all of this so that we would believe, and he gives us examples of those who believe, and those who struggle to believe, and those who don't believe. It, this is the, the the call of John. This is the point of why he has written the, the book. That some would believe, and some aren't. And he's written so that we, the reader, would believe. There, there's a story in the Gospel account of Mark that, that Kirsten, my, my wife, and I um, have held on to for a number of years. That has been so helpful for us. As many of you know, we have a, a son who has a seizure disorder, and now for Uh, 10 years, we've wrestled really in and out of belief, um, a struggle to believe, sometimes um, unbelief that Jesus is able and capable and willing to bring healing or even to help. And and just in, in full transparency there at times, we've wrestled to believe in the goodness of God with this issue. We've wrestled with that. And in Mark 9, there's a story of a dad who brings his son to Jesus for healing because his his son has had seizures since childhood, we're told. And, and Jesus speaks to the dad about what? About healing? That's not what he speaks to the dad about. He speaks to the dad about belief. And he says to the dad, all things are possible for one who believes. In other words... Jesus is saying, Dad, do you believe that your son can be healed? And if he is to be healed, that I would be the one who would bring healing. Do you believe that? And we're told in Mark 9 that the dad cries out. And there's some manuscripts that say he cries out with tears. He cries out this, I believe, help my unbelief. There's this tension in life, of belief and unbelief. And in the gospel account of John, the passage we just read through and, and the passages we'll see over the coming weeks, he uses both stories of belief and stories of unbelief to bring us to a place of believing that Jesus is who he says he is. We're invited into the experience in ways that we can relate. And so this morning what we see are at least three different categories of unbelief, at least as I, I see it, maybe you see more, but, but John doesn't put those categories there to discourage us. He, he doesn't put those there, uh, these categories of unbelief there at, as an option, right? Hey, if you don't want to believe, here are a few options, here are ways that you don't, don't have to believe. No, John shows us a few categories of unbelief, I think, so that we can relate and be drawn in to believe all the more. And I think also, so that we would cry out, maybe even in tears, that we would cry out, I believe, help my unbelief. So chapter 7 of John begins how, this is after this. Again, John's way, this is John's way of moving us along in the story. John isn't as much interested in, in chronology as he is about theology. He's more concerned about, it seems at least, about moving the story along so that we would see more of Jesus than, than he is about, hey, let's get all the, the, the timing straight. And so he says, so after this, just a vague sort of Next, right, this is what happens along the way. Jesus is going from place to place, we're told, in Galilee. Now, Galilee is this region west of the Sea of Galilee and north of Judea, the region of Judea, where Jerusalem, the Jewish capital city, is. And John tells us that Jesus would not travel into Judea because the Jewish leaders there were seeking to kill him. And so John gives us the context of what's going on in verse 2 to set the stage. He says it's during the time when the Jews were celebrating the Feast of Booths or the Feast of Tabernacles. This was a, a traditional Jewish festival where the people would construct temporary booths or leafy shacks, tents. And they would live in them for a time as a way to remember, as a way to celebrate God's provision for them as they were released from slavery in Egypt. This was a a meaningful celebration for, for generations of God's people, of God's presence with them. That he came down to be present with them in a tabernacle in the wilderness, and so that, that's the the context. There a significant celebration of the Jewish people in Jerusalem, this capital city, which is in Judea, south of Galilee. And so, in verse three, we're told that his brothers came to Jesus with some instruction. Brothers, right? Jesus, brothers, right? His own family came to him with, with some instruction, with some prodding. Now. Uh, remember this. If, uh, if you're thinking, brothers, how's this work out? Re- remember this. Just because, uh, uh, just because Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and, and implanted into Mary before she and Joseph were married and, and, and had relations, um, that doesn't mean that Mary and Joseph didn't have other children. Right, that that didn't mean they didn't have other other children. In fact, the gospel account of Matthew chapter thirteen verse fifty five, you can look at it some other time. We're we're told that he had at least four brothers: James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. Right, and 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 had some sisters as well. So, in the gospel account of John, we're told that Jesus' um, younger brothers had to be younger brothers come up and say to him in verse three, "Hey, let's get out of here and go down to Judea now." Put this all in the context of what we've walked through over the last couple weeks and and catch what is happening here. It seems as if his brothers had probably been around him over the last several days. During these days when many of Jesus' disciples, Jesus' learners that we talked about last week, take off and leave Jesus. They're out. Right, that 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 uh, scene that we talked about last week, where where some of them take off, and Jesus turns to Peter and, and he says, "Do you want to go too?" And Peter responds, "Where else would we go? Where else would we go, Jesus?" It seems as if it, these brothers were there to see this happen, or at least had heard about it, and had now caught back up with Jesus, and, and they say to Jesus, "Let's go to Judea and, and let's catch some of these disciples who are there, these learners who took off." Who abandoned you? Let, let's find them. And, and, and if you would do some of the works that you, you have done in the past, maybe they would come back. I think that's the, the setting here. That's the context. That Jesus' brothers are, are trying to, to get him to do some things to win back his followers. They say, Jesus, if you want to be widely known, you've got to market yourself to the watching world. You've got to keep these things up. Now just pause for a second here and get, get in the context of, of who we're talking about. Jesus is one of at least five brothers. Um, He had had brothers, and we've got to assume everything that went uh, along with a house of five boys. Now, I'll just speak from some experience here, having five boys of our own. Here's what that means. That means not a meal goes by at the table without at least one bodily function, right? That shouldn't have happened, right? That, that's going on for Jesus. That, that means with five boys in the house, toothpaste is always, 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 for crying out loud, always left in the sink. And no one did it, right? That means that that naked snow angels on a dare for 20 bucks, that, that's happening, right? In a, in a house of five boys. That means not a lot of wrestling and a lot of laughing and a lot of really hard times and a lot of really good times are going on in that house. And it also means that there's some deep family connection. It also means that there are some family dynamics going on. That, that the younger brother and the older brother and the middle brother dynamics are probably happening. And that probably means here in this text That four younger brothers who knew enough about Jesus to know that He's special, and because He's special, they want Him to be in the right places at the right times to get the right kinds of attention that He needs to be getting. And so they come to Jesus and they say, Let's go. Let's go to Judea so that the watching world can see what you can do. And John tells us, Sadly, in verse 5, I want you to look at verse 5. I think this is a, a pivot here in the text. For not even his brothers believed in him. There's unbelief. It, it's his family. That is, uh, this is what, what we see, I think, as the first category of unbelief, and, and it's this there's just familiar unbelief. familiar unbelief Jesus brothers had become so accustomed to had become so familiar to Jesus being Jesus it become so familiar to them that true belief in who Jesus was had not set in I wonder if that's where where some of us would fall even today it's it's true that none of us are siblings of Jesus um, but but has a sense of familiar unbelief set in even to your own heart, where you've just become accustomed to Jesus being Jesus, that that you've had a hard time seeing him as more than just someone who can do some pretty amazing things. Maybe a a bit different than his own brothers, but still in the same category of, of familiar unbelief. You've just always been taught about Jesus. You just grew up hearing about jesus he's always been a part of the conversation in your house he's always been a part of the conversation around family times you've always been a part of a church as long as you can remember you can't even really now even imagine what life would be like without jesus being in there somewhere like turkey at thanksgiving right or like camping in the summer or like pumpkin spice lattes, ten months of the year. Right? Or or like Saturday morning cartoons. Remember those? Uh, or like um, uh, Sunday, Monday, Thursday, and sometimes Saturday night football. Right? Or, or maybe it's like springtime allergies, or Tuesday night, uh, Tuesday night food truck rallies, or. Birthday cake at, at birthday parties or champagne toasts at anniversaries or fireworks at, at 4th of July. It's just become something that's a normal part of your everyday, familiar life. You can't imagine what life would be like without Jesus in there somewhere. But maybe you're saying, well, how, how is that unbelief? And that, that's a good question. It's unbelief in this way if you've gotten to a place of, of thinking uh, i've begun to see jesus as familiar familiar enough that belief in who jesus really is messiah son of god savior king that that doesn't even cross my mind unless i really stop and, and try to think hard about that i've i've wondered over the last 8 weeks if God may be stripping us of some of our familiarity so that we would see Jesus for who He is. Belief in Jesus cannot be simply attached to attending a Sunday morning gathering. I don't mean to sound harsh. It's something I, I need to hear as, as well. If my relationship with Jesus has declined and diminished simply because I'm not here on a Sunday morning, I think the question that's got to come to mind is, is that true belief? No. Are, are we made to be together? Absolutely, right? Are, are we created to be with one another, to be worshiping God together? Absolutely. Yes, yes, yes. But I wonder if God may be showing us Relationship with Jesus isn't simply and only tied to, to gathering together on a Sunday morning or, or on and on, whatever that looks like as the familiar rhythm. I wonder how many of us have struggled with familiar unbelief and we haven't even realized it. Jesus says to his brothers in verse 6, It's not my time to go to Jerusalem. Uh, for this feast is the the the, the way you, that you want me to go to this feast, and, and it's not my time to go to this feast. You can you can always go to that feast. You, you can do that. You can go every year. Right? The the way that you've always gone to this feast is the same way that you can go to this feast. Now you're a part of this world, and and the crowds of people are not going to hate you, but they will hate me because I'm speaking against its evils. So you you go on. Ahead, I'm not going to go to the feast in the same way that you are. I think that's what John is trying to communicate here that, that Jesus is, is getting at. I'm not going up to this feast, the feast that you are talking about. And, and many have said that Jesus is hinting at the fact that His feast is coming. That the true Passover feast where He will be that that he's making the point with his brothers that you can go ahead and go to that familiar feast, but the time is coming when a different feast will be celebrated. And, And Jesus is pointing to himself. Isn't that what our familiar unbelief needs as well? So some redirection to the point. The point is Jesus himself, not, not something we've created instead of Jesus. So a question I think for, for us is this, what in your life is pointing you on and on to the truth of Jesus, encouraging you to see the point? And the point is, is Jesus. Everything is pointing to Jesus. Familiar unbelief doesn't just happen because of familiarity or or frequency in your life. It happens with thoughtless, unintentional religion. Have you uh, circled yourself with others who would point you to Jesus intentionally, intentionally, point you to, to Jesus? Even in times of quarantine, and even in times of isolation, are you pushing into community intentionally with others who are going to say, hey, let's look at Jesus? Or are you taking the time to see more of Jesus in scripture, intentionally looking? Or are you communing with Jesus in prayer intentionally? What in your life right now, it just as a way of application, what in your life right now It is pointing you to Jesus as the point, not just, uh, yeah, uh, some of this and some of this and and maybe a side of Jesus. He's there, I don't know. What what is it that is pointing you intentionally to Jesus? Our unbelief can take uh, another form as well. In verse 10, we, we see Jesus' brothers go on to the feast. We're also told that That Jesus goes to the feast as well, not in the ways that his brothers wanted him to go, not publicly, um, uh, but privately, not making a big deal about it, but but quietly. And John tells us the Jews were looking for him. And this is not just a group of Jews, right? But this is John's way of saying the Jewish leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes and the priests and the Sadducees and, and, and the top leaders were looking for Jesus, why? If you remember, all the way back to verse one, they were looking for him. Why? To kill him. And so they were saying, "Where is he? Where is he?" And there was quite a bit of commotion about Jesus, and everybody was talking about Jesus, and his name and his fame had become known among the people who were talking about him. They they, they didn't really know what they were talking about, but they they knew they were talking about this Jesus guy. There, there's a lot of commotion. Have you ever been in a situation like that where you step into a conversation and you hear the mention of someone's name and just to be a part of the conversation, to be on the in crowd, you're, oh yeah, that guy, yeah, 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 I know who you're talking about. And you presume you know because you've heard a thing or two and so you jump into the conversation. For weeks now, Kirsten and I have resisted the Tiger King buzz. If you're not familiar with the Tiger King Praise God. Uh, but, but if you are, uh, if you aren't, it's an eight-part mini-series that Netflix put out a few months ago. So if anything good came from the stay-at-home order, it wasn't that, but it came out anyway. Um, it, we resisted that for several weeks. Uh, but, but anytime I heard the name Joe Exotic, which is the name that the Tiger King gave himself because Tiger King wasn't Uh, enough. Um, Anytime I heard that name, I would say, oh yeah, yeah, that guy. And and I would try to get into the conversation and and say a couple things that I had heard about him. Some some based on some things I had heard, some based on pictures I had seen, right, uh, of him. And if, by the way, if you've seen him, um, uh, if you you think my hair is bad, his is really bad. My, My thoughts about Joe were in a lot of ways based on what I presumed I knew about him. So here's what's happening: people are are talking about Jesus. Verse twelve tells us that some were saying, "Yeah, yeah, oh yeah, yeah, that guy, he, he's a good man." Others were saying, "No, not not that one. He, he's leading people astray." But verse thirteen tells us no one was really saying much about him for fear of the Jewish leaders. And the thought is that the Jewish leaders had become frustrated, they'd become annoyed, they'd become angered uh, by so much talk about Jesus that they didn't want any more discussion about him. So people were, were talking about him but, but but were trying to stay quiet. Some presumed he was a good man because of what a good man because of what they had heard about his miracles. And some presumed he had been deceiving people because what they had heard about his teachings. In either case it was unbelief that, that he was truly the Son of God, that he was the Messiah. It was, it was presumptive unbelief. I think that's the, the category of unbelief we see here is presumptive unbelief. We may say, no, they, they believed. Yeah, they believed he could do good miracles. Right, That's what they believed. They, they believed he was an interesting teacher, wrong though he may be. He was an interesting teacher. But at the end of the day, it was unbelief. It was presumptive unbelief. Their belief was based on things they had made up about Jesus. They, they presume they knew about Him. Now, this is a category of unbelief, I think, that creeps into our lives as well, doesn't it? When, when, when we make Jesus into who we want Him to be, right? That, that's not right, un, uh, right belief when we make Him into who we want Him to be, at the same time, when we're disappointed that Jesus didn't follow through with something we thought He should follow through with, that that He's never promised, but He didn't follow through with it, that's not right belief. When we've created in our minds who we think Jesus ought to be for us, we have presumptive unbelief. And we do this all the time, don't we? Jesus, why would you do this to me? Why would you allow this? If you are who you say you are, then why is my life like this? And none of those things are based on, uh, often, none of those things are, are based on biblical promises, but they're promises that we've presumed he would follow through with based on how we think he should follow through. And what does that do? It sets us up for discouragement and spiraling into more unbelief. He didn't keep up his end of the deal like I thought he should have based on what I put in front of him. And so I don't believe and now I'm spiraling into more unbelief. And and what we know to be true about Jesus, what we know to be true about Jesus, it is written in this book, right? What we know to be true about Jesus is written here not here, not the things that we can think of, right? The things that that are written in our heads lead us to unbelief. The things that are written in God's Word with the help of the Spirit's leading and teaching will move us to see Jesus for who He truly is, which will lead us then to to worship Him for who He truly is. Not the way we presume He ought to be based on the things that we think or, or the ways that we feel that lead us to worship us. And so can I encourage us then in in this way? This morning, this is going to sound simple, and you're going to be thinking, yep, that's what a pastor of preaching would encourage us to do. But I just want to encourage you in in this way. If you have not taken some time over these weeks of loneliness and isolation and just time, um, don't watch the Tiger King. Um, That's not my encouragement. My encouragement is pick up your Bible And see who Jesus is. Look at who Jesus is from from God's Word that that points everything to Jesus. I want to encourage you in that way. If you haven't thought about that, uh, maybe the the Spirit would prompt you in that direction. presumptive unbelief. Uh, John moves us forward in verse 14, and he says about the middle of the feast is when Jesus goes up to the temple in Jerusalem, and he begins teaching. and, And he must have been a good teacher because the people were amazed they marveled at his teaching how is this man able to teach like this when he's had no formal training they say jesus responds to them in verse 16 and he says well this isn't of me this teaching isn't of me this is coming straight from God the Father. And he continues with challenging words in verse 17. He says, if, if you're doing God's will, you'll know this is from God. Or, or if I've made it up on, on my own authority, you'll know the difference. Or, or in other words, if your life is one of obedience to God, you know that what I'm teaching lines up with His authority. If your life is one of obedience to God, you've already been drawn in to believe that that is a life of faith. And he continues, I'm not saying anything new. I'm, speaking from my, I'm not speaking from my, my own authority. I'm not looking for the attention or glory that ought to be directed to God at all. Now here's what's happening here as you read through this. Jesus has taught in the temple and the Jewish leaders they're impressed. they're impressed with his ability to teach because they're students and experts of god 's word. They're experts. Right, They're, they're students and, and experts, and so they know it, and they're impressed by His teaching. They know it inside and out, and so what Jesus has taught then, then becomes an intellectual pursuit. And they want to pick it apart, and they want to intellectually sort of pull this thing out and see what, what all is there. But that's not at all tied to a true heart of obedience on their part. Here's the category I think we see of, of unbelief. It's, it's intellectual unbelief. They've made a life of faith in God into a life of knowledge about God. That's not true belief at all. They're most concerned about what Jesus is teaching and, and where he's teaching it. Here in the temple and how he's come to know the things that he's teaching, if he's never been to their schools of teaching, how would he know these things? These religious leaders have missed altogether that relationship with God is not simply knowledge about him. And it's a life of faith and obedience. And we've got to remember that true obedience, listen, I think I forget this often, true and right obedience takes faith, doesn't it? To, to move in that direction, faith in the one who has given you the laws to obey, the, the, the things to follow after. And these religious leaders have made this into an intellectual endeavor, and that reveals their unbelief that Jesus is who he says he is, that he's the authoritative Messiah sent from God. And so what does Jesus do? He says, all right, you want to play the intellectual game? Well, let's go that direction. And he backs them into a corner. And based on his divine knowledge that they're seeking to kill him, we see that in verse 1, he says, well, hasn't Moses given you the law that that you think you're experts of? Hasn't he given you the law? You you know it all, right? So he's given you that law, but you don't keep it because you have plans to kill me, which would break one of the big ten, right? And if you're keeping track of the laws that Moses has given, you would know that one. And the crowd responds defensively, you must be demon-possessed, you're a crazy man, no one's out to kill you, where'd you hear that? Okay, Jesus says, we'll we'll just go a different route. And he just keeps pushing them further back. He says, I healed one man on the Sabbath. He was lame, he couldn't walk, he he couldn't move, and I healed him. Didn't Moses give you the law about circumcision? At this point they're thinking, where's he going with this, right? Didn't Moses give you the law about circumcision that on the eighth day every male is to be circumcised? Well, what if that eighth day falls on the Sabbath? Then what? A day where it's against God's law to work and, listen, circumcision is work on both parts, right? Uh, what do you do then? Where do you go then? So Jesus uses this argument that's very well known in this day, uh, this lesser to greater uh, argument. You have, you have legitimized dealing with a body part on the Sabbath, and, and I restored an entire body on the Sabbath, and you're angry with me. And he pushes them back into this corner and he says in verse 24, don't judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Or in other words, don't make your judgments based on what you think you know intellectually without any consideration of heart obedience and a life of faith. This is intellectual unbelief. Here's what they've done, and and I think we've done this at times as well. They've zoomed so far into the minutia of the law and obedience to it and what they know intellectually to be right they've zoomed so far in that they've missed who is standing right in front of them It's intellectual unbelief it. And this is something we do. Isn't it? I'm sure it's something that, that we do. We, we want to be seen as capable. We want to see, be seen as knowledgeable. We want to be seen as right. And so it's like, hey, Jesus, would you get out of the way so that we can see the law? Jesus, would you get out of the way so that I can see how I'm supposed to live? Jesus, hop out of the way here so I can see how I'm supposed to be living. And when we do that, who becomes central? Who becomes the focus? Me, right? You. And ultimately, that's unbelief in Jesus because it's belief in self which gets us nowhere. Obedience to God's law is not an end in itself. It's an act of faith that, that we would move toward obedience with God's help. And and they miss it all together. It's intellectual unbelief. Now here's the blanket of irony over this entire passage, and I'll tie it up here. I think this is a beautiful end in- to all of this. There is unbelief all over this passage. Familiar unbelief, presumptive unbelief, intellectual unbelief. But, but the question has to come to mind, why are they all in Jerusalem? Why are all of these people in Jerusalem? To, to celebrate the Feast of Booths. To celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. A feast commemorating how God provided for the people in the wilderness and came to be with them. Came to, to set up a tent to, to meet with the people in a tabernacle. In the very beginning verses of the Gospel of John, if you remember back to chapter 1, You remember what's said of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 14, that the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen His glory, glories of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. The the word used there for dwelt, dwelt among us, It is actually a word that means tabernacle. So literally, Jesus became flesh and tabernacled. He set up his tent among us to show the glory of God. Jesus came to be near. Jesus is now standing in in chapter 7. He's standing in the temple during the Feast of Tabernacles as the one who came to live among them, replacing the need for the tabernacle altogether, replacing the need for the temple altogether. It's because of Jesus... That, that we're now able to draw near God in faithful obedience. And as He stands in front of His brothers, and as He stands in front of the crowds, and as He stands in front of the Jewish leaders, He is the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth, worthy to be believed and worthy to be worshipped. And many of us are probably in a place this morning, Maybe even after hearing these categories, which one, which one hits you this morning? Of these categories, is familiar unbelief or, or presumptive unbelief or intellectual unbelief? Probably one of those in some way hits you this morning, conv- is, is a conviction on your heart. And, and so maybe even this morning you're in a place where you feel the need to cry out to God, maybe even in tears saying i believe would you help my unbelief i need help so what i want to do this morning is i want to pray for us in, in that direction give you a little bit of space to think through those things and then i want to sing uh together not me i'm not going to sing i want i want us to sing together about um uh, this beautiful truth that we have a, a mediator one god between us and god um, so let me pray for us this morning and we'll continue. God, we um, come to a, a text like this where we see just unbelief after unbelief, after unbelief, even people in Jesus' own family not believing and and people who who were waiting on a Messiah not believing that Jesus is that Messiah. and Jewish leaders who know your word backwards and forwards, not seeing in your word. The, the prophecy pointing to Jesus who's now standing in front of them. And God, I think it would be easy for us to look at these people and say, "Ah, why do they not believe? But some of these same things uh, are in our hearts as well. Where we've just become so familiar with the things of Jesus that it just doesn't hit anymore. Would you help our unbelief there? Where, where maybe we've um, presumed that Jesus is somebody completely different than your word says he is, as truth. And so where we ha- have done that, would you help our unbelief there? And God, where we've made this uh, relationship with you uh, an intellectual endeavor so that we can build up our own knowledge, would you help our unbelief there? Help us to realize that that's gaining us nothing with you no favor with you would you help our unbelief where we need it god and if there are those who are watching this morning listening this morning who don't yet know you my prayer is that this text these verses these 24 verses that you spirit would work in hearts to draw people to believe that's a work that you do and so would you do that we pray all these things in the name of jesus amen